Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And Mike, we're still working through our first Masters 1000 of the season as we have both the men and women competing in Miami. And uh, at least for me, this event is always nice because it's a little more stretched out that it almost has like a Grand Slam feel to it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a Grand Slam feel without the time difference of our last Grand Slam in Australia. Although we did have a match that went uh, relatively late last night for us. And and for those listening, this is a, a rare morning recording of the podcast for Ben and I, which is why my voice sounds five times deeper and my brain is going to work five times slower. So you've been you've been forewarned, people. Yeah, we appreciate uh, the warning. We do have uh, an exciting guest for this podcast as well, Noah Rubin, who is uh, the face of Behind the Racket, the podcast, and also a former eight, a current ATP pro, I should say, uh, will join us later. But uh, we're going to start on the men's side this morning and, you know, a few Canadians in action in singles and Really, it's been Milos Raonic kind of quietly going about his business this week. You know, he's been to three quarterfinals in Miami in the past and uh, just kind of comfortably working his way through the draw. Really easy win off the bat against Jordan Thompson. Hugo Ambert is a tricky young French player and he dispatched him in in straight sets. And I've always felt, you know, when we get to this... um, American swing of Indian Wells, Miami. It's a surface and a space where Milo should be very dangerous kind of early on in the season. Yeah, it's his third tournament of the year. So he's still, you know, rounding into form, which explains perhaps in, in Mexico why he didn't go further. But um, no reason why Milo shouldn't be able to have a, a very solid uh, result here. And I would have said that at the start of the tournament uh, as well. I mean, it's an opportunity for so many of the guys without. Uh, Djokovic, Federer, and and Nadal in the draw, and Milos is certainly one of those next tier dangerous players that could cause some uh, some serious damage. Uh, uh, he's made the quarterfinals three times before uh, at Miami. Um, I'm maybe a little bit surprised that he hasn't gone deeper than that. But then you look at the three guys that he's uh, you know fallen to in the quarters. There, you've got Rafa Nadal, Nick Kyrgios, and Juan Martín del Potro. So three of the the top male players out there. Um, and so uh, we'll see how much further this goes for Milos. But being the last Canadian on the on the male side is is really no surprise with him. As when he's healthy, we've come to expect that uh, that he can contend for these titles still. Yeah, and he's in an interesting section of the draw, bottom half, and now awaiting a Polish player, Hubert Urkacz, a great young talent who I, I feel has had some ups and downs, started the season actually picking up a great title in Delray Beach and then slipped off in the Australian Open. But Hubert Urkacz, you know, we were we were waiting. Maybe we're going to see one of these Canadian clashes at these this event because Denis Shapovalov was right there in the wings potentially to face Milos, and Urkacz defeats him in straight sets, a 6-3, 7-6. You know, I get these questions about Dennis. When is he going to take the next step? You know, when are we going to see one of these runs to back to a final winning a big time title? And I, I look at these fields and these draws and you just have to you kind of remind yourself there are so many excellent players within the top 50, top 40, top 30. And her catch and Shapovalov to me on paper are very, very close. Hergatz is one of those guys who I feel like hasn't achieved as much as he's capable of yet. He's a very capable opponent. And for Dennis and those asking, when is he going to take the next step? Well, I mean, take a look back and look at his repertoire these last three, four years. He's been taking that next step every season so far. 
currently ranked 11th on the cusp of the top 10, which is somewhere where he certainly has the capabilities to be a mainstay for years to come. And I don't think it's the on-court uh, capabilities of Dennis that, that needs tweaking and, and continued development. It's the mental aspect to me. And I know there were a lot of people on Twitter who were reacting to some of his negative you know, outbursts um, and, and emotional distractions in that match against Hercatch. And I've got to agree that he needs to find a way to continue to mature um, and, and find a way to eliminate those unnecessary distractions. Uh, this time it was, um, you know, Hawkeye that had him down. And mm-hmm. I believe it was David Kane on Twitter, who I enjoy following, who's done work for the WTA. And, and he kind of tweeted something about how it was uh, Chapo who was complaining that there wasn't Hawkeye on clay, was it last year? And now yep. here he is complaining about Hawkeye and how it's not working properly in his estimation. So you got to block that kind of stuff out and just get down to business. And I think that's the biggest missing link for Dennis right now. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. It was kind of an interesting dynamic actually between Shapovalov and her catch on the other side because to me Shapovalov is kind of this emotional wear your heart on your sleeve player. You see a lot of highs and lows and her catch is so even keeled. You have the same level of emotion and same face and expression from him on the other side at all times. So um, I, I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. Um, I, I think it depends on your personality, but definitely Dennis has to probably manage those lows, emotional lows, just a little bit better and not let those leak into how he is playing the game and uh, letting that affect him. So he bows out in the round of 16 um, and sorry, pardon me. He bows out in the third round of round of 16. We will have Milos Raonic against uh, Hubert Hercatch and uh, Raonic playing great tennis right now. Other Canadian in the singles field on the men's side, Felix Ojeelia's team, you know, two years ago, uh, 2019, he was here and an opportunity was knocking to maybe even get in the finals of the Miami Open playing semifinals against John Isner. And I remember that match. Um, he fell in straight sets, had some opportunities, and we thought, you know, he got tight in big moments with his serve. His serve kind of broke down in crucial moments and, and fell in it to Isner there in 2019. You know, fast forward to 2021, John Isner to me is not really quite the same guy and the same threat, but for whatever reason, Miami always brings out his best tennis. I really thought this was the best I'd seen John Isner play in a couple of years. And he defeated Felix um, in straight sets, seven, six, seven, six. And when you have a player with that serve, to me, one of the best serves of all time, and you get into that tie break, you have to play pretty perfect tennis, flawless tennis when you're protecting your serve, or there simply aren't going to be opportunities to win the sets. And to me, that's what happened against John Isner. Yeah, John Isner is no slouch. And uh, I mean, I'm just looking right now that he's 35 years old now, which kind of shocks me. I can't believe he's already in his mid 30s. But with a serve like that, that thing is not going to go away. Look at Ivo Karlovich, who's still going strong in his early 40s and maintaining a almost top 100 presence on the W or WTA on the ATP tour. <laughs> There's my morning brain. I warned you about, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Isner is one of those guys that nobody is happy when they see they've got to face him in the draw, because if his serve is clicking on a hard court, you've got maybe on one hand, the number of opportunities you can count where you're going to be able to turn that match to your favor. So um, for Felix, yeah, it is disappointing. And we would have, you know, when Canadian tennis fans would have loved to have seen him, pull through that match um to me when you look at some of his losses this year the one to Isner is not one of the more troubling losses it's one that I can completely understand and kind of process it's some of the other ones this year um that that would concern me a little bit more 
And it, it does feel like there's been a little bit of a stalling in his development, that his stock is one of those top next-gen guys has perhaps dipped a little bit. Um, but again, Felix is so young. There's so much time to work with it. And, and also don't forget that we're in this pandemic and it's affecting people in, in very, very different ways, professional athletes included. Um, and so it's not normal circumstances either. So uh, I have confidence that Felix is going to work through whatever issues it is that are sort of hindering him a little bit. Uh, but I'm not concerned about a loss to, to John Isner. That could happen to anybody on any given day on a hard court, especially like you said, in a place he's played well previously like Miami. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, the site of his only Masters 1000 title, which happened just a few years ago, 2018. And then he was in the finals there in 2019. And uh, look, for me, Felix, I thought was playing just fantastic the week before in Acapulco. Uh, you got to remind people, he pushed Stefano Tsitsipas to three sets there. Um, and Tsitsipas, to me, is playing some of the best tennis of anybody right now, playing top five in the world tennis. And uh, Felix had him on the cusp there just a week ago in Acapulco. So I think he's right there. And, and yet that, sorry, and yet that matchup with Tsitsipas, uh, that's kind of indicative, perhaps, of some of the struggles that Felix is having to me, because that's a guy that Felix used to own going back to their junior true. days. And even early professional days when Pass was the more established player uh, and had a little bit more experience and, and solid ATP results, Felix was still continuing to have that sort of, you know, spell cast over him. Pass admitted, you know, a couple of years ago that he couldn't quite figure Felix out yet. Well, now it's three matches in a row that uh, Stefanos has taken over Felix uh, and the last one being, um, uh, you know, the recent one that you mentioned. So I to me, there, again... Yeah. Hey, Stefanos, great player, top 10 guy, future Grand Slam champ. And I'd like to say the same for Felix as well. But for right now, to me, that kind of indicates, hey, whatever Felix had going for him in terms of his mojo um, hasn't quite been clicking uh, as of late. Yeah, that that's fair. And, uh, you know, some comments, I think, uh, alluding to Felix needing to improve the return of serve, which I, I'm sure is quite true. And I, I think at your development stages, when you're a younger player, return of serve is something that you progressively improve over time. I think a great sign also is we have clay court season right around the corner. And to me, Felix, his best surface, I actually still believe is the clay. And uh, we've seen Dennis play well on clay as well. So that swing coming around too, I think is great opportunities for a couple of our younger Canadians on the men's side. One veteran Canadian, you know, he's baby faced, but I, we still call him a veteran because he's 30 years old. Now, Vashuk Pospisil competing here. He had an early exit uh, to Mackenzie McDonald in three sets. I don't think the match result is really what people were talking about with this one. Uh, during and following um, Vashik Pospisil I've never seen him really display much emotion on the court and I have to say I've never seen him this angry before on court ever this was his surely his biggest blow up that we've ever witnessed he apologized on Twitter afterwards uh, but basically he was having conversations with the chair umpire on the side and uh, revealed that he was getting screamed at by the ATP chairman Andrea Cadenzi for an hour and a half the previous day for trying to unite the players and uh, that was the cause of his uh, frustrations leading him to break a couple of rackets and kind of scream and and let out that emotion Obviously not a pretty sight, but, you know, we, we've discussed with Vashik and about Vashik these these issues for the better part of a year now forming this PTPA, Professional Tennis Players Association, and the challenges that that it faces, uh, you know, him and the tour and trying to unite the players and to, to hear that he's kind of dealing with these issues behind the scenes, I, I think is uh, 
difficult to hear, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. And and never seen that amount of negative energy in an outburst from Vashik before on a court. I mean, he's one of the all-time nice guys on the tour. So when you see a guy like Vashik who's having a, a, a meltdown like that, carrying that emotional baggage with him onto the tennis court, there's definitely cause for concern. There's something going on behind the scenes. And I would take Vashik at his word. I mean, clearly we weren't privy to the conversations. It wasn't recorded and, and we haven't seen or heard what it was like his his meeting with Godenzi, but if he says he's being screamed at, I mean, I tend to believe him. Uh, Vashik has said in the past to us that he's a man of principle, and whether you agree with his principle or not, I mean, that's another story. But he is a man that uh, that I would say definitely uh, speaks truthfully um, and from and from the heart as well. Uh, when we last spoke spoke to him, which was end of 2020, just before the the start of the new year. He mentioned that this whole situation with the PTPA has has forced him to develop really thick skin. Uh, I think he joked that his whole body was a callus. Um, <laughs> still has the baby face, he admitted, but his whole body was a callus. And, and it's very clear that this is taking a, a, a mental toll on him. The fact that he had to go out and play a match the day after a meeting like this, which was going to be contentious, no matter how it ended up going, you can imagine, because both sides are so polarized and, and so opposite. Um, no doubt he was going to be carrying some of this negative energy onto the court. And you know, Ben, you play a lot of tennis currently. When, when things go, aren't going your way on the court, e- even if you're going in mentally feeling the best you are, it's going to you know, affect you and you're going to struggle with your emotions. If you're carrying stuff like that with you, I, I can't imagine how in a professional tennis match you're going to be able to handle uh, a bad day at the office. And that's clearly what it was for Vashik. Uh, I mean, we've all had bad days at the office. I, I can't remember losing my cool like that necessarily, but... <laughs> you know, people do for sure in, in regular jobs as well. So, you know, I think we need to speak a little bit about the deeper issues here, which are what is going on with this PTPA? Um, what do people know or what do people still not know? And uh, and what are the chances that there's going to be successful, um, you know, progress for this proposed union uh, here in 2021? Yeah, you look, look, I think, as, as you said, everybody has a breaking point, And I think we witnessed Vashik's, um, and, and it's obviously a different arena in sports with cameras all around you. And you kind of have your freak out, uh, which is, which is understandable. Um, I, I go back to hearing Milos Raonic on this, because I remember asking him about the PTPA and essentially he was saying, this is probably something that's groundwork for the next generation of players that if they were to make this work that if you form you know this association successfully uh, you unite the tours maybe we get rid of you know so many of these separate bodies working um separately and not united uh that this is something that's going to affect the next generation of players that we will see that change over time and you know five ten fifteen years that uh this fight is not necessarily for like oh, we want this type of prize money for our players, 200 to 400. We want it by November 2021. I don't think that's the case at all. I think this is a long-term game. Um, I think Vashik realizes that. As you said, we're not privy to these conversations. I'm sure they are very, very heated. I'm sure ATP chairman Andrea Gadenzi is, is an emotional type of character as well, who feels very passionately about how you're supposed to run the tour. Um, someone who's obviously older and has, has been within the tour for many, many years um, and maybe not believing these players have the foundation or understanding to, to operate and run their own association. So there's, there's a lot of uh, different dynamics at work here. We're, we're not really sure of it. <laughs> I think there's two things that Vashik and his PTPA has to accomplish, in, in my opinion. 
One is you've got to get the players on board and you've got to get the younger players on board. As you mentioned, this is something perhaps to set the stage for, for future generations um, to have that uh, equity on, on tour amongst all players in some form or, or a little bit more sharing of, of revenue. But I think you've got to get the younger ones on tour. And, and I can speak from my own professional experience. I've worked in jobs that have had unions or associations to represent the workers. And I've worked in others that haven't had that. And, and in jobs where there have been unions, not everybody is, is always rah, rah, you know, get behind it. You've got to do yeah. some convincing. Some people just want to come to work, do their job, and they're quite happy with what they've got. So I think you've got to do a good job of sharing the message with the younger players in particular. Hey, here's why this matters to you. And here's why you need to, you know, support and we need to get you guys on board at some level. And the other thing is, I think they need to do a better job of sort of sharing with the public what the key challenges are because the public right now, all they're seeing is a meltdown on court by this Canadian player. Uh, right. and, and they don't know necessarily what is going on behind the scenes. And I think it was good that Vashik had his apology on social media. I think it would have been better if he sat down, faced the media and talked about it, but I would imagine he probably needed some time to cool down after the match. But uh, I, I think a better job of sharing that message overall is, is also required. And, you know, one thing we've got to keep in mind is 2021 is maybe not the best time where we're going to see something like the PTPA have success because tournaments are struggling this year. We're not operating under normal times. And if you just look at the National Bank Open, for example, formerly the Rogers Cup here in Toronto and Montreal, uh, they couldn't get off the ground last year like many other tournaments do the pandemic. There's no guarantee they're going to be able to happen this year with fans either to get that revenue coming back. There's not a whole lot of money to be sharing around this year anyhow. Um, mm -hmm. So it may be, you know, perhaps not the best time to see something like this gain the traction that it needs, unfortunately, for Vashik and, and his fellow supporters. Yeah, that was certainly part of the criticism levied uh, last year when we saw, I think, that photo taken from the U.S. Open, all these players um, in that discussion about the PTPA and trying to be united. Uh, and there was back and forth. And that was, I think, some of the question involved of why now? Um, why are we doing this now? Uh, but, uh, you know, this this is going to be an ongoing issue behind the scenes, I think, for a long, long time. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. We're the official podcast at Tennis Canada. You can find us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. We're also on Instagram, Matchpoint Canada. We do have a guest this week, and he has a podcast of his own, also member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Fascinating podcast and platform called uh, Behind the Racket. And he's also a current ATP pro, uh, been as high as number 125 in the world. Um, I had a chance to chat with Noah Rubin this week, who to me is a fascinating guy. Yeah, well, Ben, let's uh, have a listen to your, your interview with Noah. He's uh, currently ranked 275th in the rankings, has been as high as, as 125 back in 2018. And uh, the thing of interest to me um, when I heard that you got Noah to, to speak with was not just an ATP, current ATP player, but someone who's choosing to take his time to um, have a podcast and how many professional players would be able to do that while they're grinding it out on tour. But it offers such an awesome insight into the challenges of a player like Noah Rubin. And uh, I really enjoyed your, your conversation with him. Let's have a listen. Now pleased to be joined by an ATP pro. He's a former Wimbledon junior singles champion. He's also founder of Behind the Racket and a voice on its popular podcast, which gives a glimpse into the ins and outs of the professional tennis life told by its players. Uh, thrilled to be welcomed by Noah Rupin on the podcast. Noah, thanks for joining uh, Matchpoint Canada this week. 
No, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, happy to have you. I should uh, also wish you a uh, Chag Sameach because it oh. is uh, it is Passover and uh, I'm celebrating as well. Have to pick oh. up my matzah today, actually. So <laughs> I, I I don't know if you're celebrating yourself. I actually did this weekend with my family, so a little early, but yeah, no, it was nice to actually spend some time with family. Um, they're mostly vaccinated, so I feel good at this point. <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, glad glad to hear. Um, you know, before we get into behind the racket and obviously, you know, what you founded and kind of created here. Um, I'm just curious to, you know, get to know you more and in terms of your background as a player, you know, you had so much success as a junior uh, growing up in the States. At what age did you first uh, pick up a racket? And when did you start having those aspirations to maybe become a professional? There, there are not many, well, besides my friends, I think I'm arrogant, but there are not many things that I like to brag about besides uh, the first time I, I, remember picking up a racket which I don't clearly remember I just it is my first picture on my camera roll mm-hmm. and it's me about a year and a half years old uh in a diaper with a shirt on hitting a ball hung from the ceiling that my parents <laughs> did um so yeah I was yeah I they like to say I had a racket in my hands since birth and but my first tournament was yeah I was seven years old so definitely started young and uh, from there, like, were, were you always kind of the like prodigy phenom? Was was that the sense when you were a child? I guess. Um, I think you know I can't attest to it at that age, but I think they knew that I had talent. I don't know if they knew what it was until I was around eight years old, nine years old, ten years old when they started putting me in tournaments. You know, earlier on than that, yeah, I looked at you know I looked at footage of me. I had footage when I was. Four, and I was like, oh, I don't know if every four-year-old can hit like that, but you don't really know what that means right. until you're playing. So, you know, it wasn't really until for me personally, until I was 10, 11, starting to actually move into international tournaments, my first one in um, Montreal. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe I am competing with some of the best players in the world right now. Maybe this is something larger than just really enjoying it. But for, you know, a long period of my life, it was just let's see if Noah enjoys it. So it's, it's been a, an interesting ride. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. And and then fast forward to uh, Wimbledon years later and, and you're hoisting a, a, a junior singles champion. What are, what are some memories of maybe, maybe first stepping on the grounds, even at the all England club and, and the feeling you get as, as like a, still a teenage player. Yeah, it was, you know, what a lot of people don't know is I actually reached my career high ranking when I was 15 uh, in ITF. So after that, I stopped playing ITF. So I focused more on my professional career. Didn't really know if I was going to go to uh, university or not. But at that point, you know, I got to six in the world. And I said, I don't know if I need anything else out of juniors right now. I, I think I got all I could. Um, and then I had a few people from my team. Um, and this actually, funny enough, I never won a match at Wimbledon before, prior to this. Never. Yeah. I played it. I Either I played it two or three times before. And then... Um, had no ITF ranking and my ATP ranking at this point got me into the junior event. They have this kind of rule that if you're top 550 in the world, it's like an exemption. And so I got into qualifying for both uh, French open and Wimbledon my last year qualified for French lost second round uh, to Quinton Elise, and then qualified for Wimbledon and ended up winning that. So it was incredible. Wimbledon was just for fun. I mean, I went, I think I got there like 12 hours before my first round match just with my father and just had a really good time. And I blinked and I was holding a trophy. So it was a incredible week that I had no expectations for. 
Yeah, it's it's funny to listen to that, and you, you think of trajectories of careers in, in sports. And I was just listening back to a, a behind the racket podcast of yours, and and uh, joking about a quarter life crisis because you recently <laughs> turned twenty five. Do, do you sometimes feel like you're you're fifty years old, but at the same time, you know, you so, you still have such a, a long life ahead of you? Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, my body feels like it's ninety sometimes after a good you know hardcore run. Um, so that never helps, but. Yeah, I, tennis is one of those sports. It's so difficult in, in what it demands from you. And and this always goes to the age-old question of, like, what is success? So, you know, when you see, you know, Alcaraz coming up at 17 years old or Yannick Sinner at 19, and you have these guys having so much success at such a young age. And, you know, this, you know, God forbid we had Nadal at his age winning Grand Slams at that age. So, you know, you have that. And then you look at 25 where, um, you know, I haven't hit top 100 yet you know, had a, it's been a tough year for everybody involved a year and a half at this point. Um, so it gets difficult. You almost find yourself irrelevant. And that's when I make jokes about a quarter life crisis, but it's, it's this idea that tennis is always looking for that one person. It's never looking for the 50 people. So it's always looking for that next one person. So, you know, yes, I had the, the spotlight for, you know, three months and then it goes on to the next guy. And then it's, you know, a Francis Tiafo, who's two years younger than me, that's, you know, now ahead of me. And it's, it happens so quickly. So you take your 15 minutes and you kind of move on, but um, you know, put the jokes aside, it, it does get tough. I guess I know a lot of players that have been in my shoes that, you know, did not even have the same success that I had. So I was very fortunate in my success so far. And I'm, and I, I do laugh. I can take the next four years off from tennis and still have enough time to make it quote unquote, but tennis has that, you know, irrelevant feeling on and off. So. Yeah, certainly um, short term memory, I think, in terms of uh, how we treat our players, you know, I, I deal with this sometimes just speaking about Bianca Andrescu here, people will come up to me and, and be like, what's going on with Bianca? Like, what's next for her? And I was like, well, you, you know, she's a US Open champion. <laughs> she's won a Grand Slam title. Um, and just having to remind people of that fact, um, you, you know, you mentioned you reached uh, number 125 is the career high, you know, we, we've seen you compete in in uh, Grand Slam main draws, seeing you battle Roger Federer at the Australian Open. Uh, what do you think the level of the game is right now on the ATP side? And uh, how much do you think is separating maybe that that top 100 between those who are trying to get there for the first time? Honestly, I mean, the ranking system that we're in right now, for those that don't know, it's basically almost a three-year ranking system because we are trying to make it where players don't feel obligated to travel during COVID. Um, but in hindsight, there is really no good answer for it because right now it's nearly impossible to move up the rankings. But if anything, I think it shows just the um, depth of just talents and, and playability, you know, between players from 20 in the world to, you know, 300 in the world, basically. And, and you're looking at that and you're saying that at any given day, that person can win you know, a challenger, that person can get to third round of a grand slam. And that just proves how difficult the situation is. And then it shows, you know, you, you can put it on that that player is working harder, or maybe there is some luck involved, but the player that's making a living versus the player not making a living, you know, the actual level of tennis is not that much different. So, you know, especially South America is a great example. And then, you know, hopefully they don't take this personally, but I mean, I think during the pandemic, there's more players that want a challenger that I've never heard of during this time, you know, in any other sport that, you know, would win at that level that you just really never heard of. I mean, young kids coming out, um, obviously in South America, they're mostly clay court players. And I get that, but 
still it's incredible to see just the, you know, the depth. And, and, and I think that's just aiding to the fact that, you know, there should be more players making a living and it should, you know, boil down a little bit to not be as top heavy because, you know, I get the top five players, you know, I get what the, they make, but you know, somebody 30 in the world compared to somebody, you know, 90 or 130, is there that much of a difference? So it, it gets difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. I think uh, a testament to that and there not being that much of a difference is uh, look at Aslan Karatsev and what he's done this season. Someone who was outside of the top 100 and, and mainly playing challengers for the bulk of his career. And now he is suddenly inside the top 30 and, and beating everybody. Um, I wanted to get into behind the racket because I, I find it such a fascinating platform and podcast. And, you know, you capture the human side of players so well and what we don't really see um, as fans and, and media too. Um, for someone like you, you know, you, you've experienced so many highs in the sport. You've experienced the lows as well. Uh, how important was this platform and, and journey for you to create um, in terms of maybe kind of liberating yourself a little bit and also just uh, connecting with other other athletes like yourself? It's actually a good question because, you know, I've, I've told people that I've asked it to that extent and it, it is therapeutic for me. You know, it was early on and it still is to this day. I, I do feel a responsibility now to keep it up and running and, and to, you know, kind of expand it as much as I can, because I do think it is helping people. You know, I get a lot of people that come up and say, you know, whether it's the players saying thank you for helping out or the fans saying it, it's great, you know, to connect with them. And also I've dealt with that myself and to hear them speaking about it. But, you know, for me, it's also, it's, I guess, ironic in a way, you know, during my darkest periods were actually during my highest level of tennis. So, you know, I started behind the racket in January of 2019. It was actually the end of 2018 where I hit my career high ranking. Um, so it was at that point where I hit that, uh, got my a top 10 win, um, you know, playing well at slams. And then I got to this point where you know, it's this normal thing of, I thought I deserved more, you know, I'm at 125 in the world. I worked really hard to get there. And then I find myself, you know, I lost in the semis of a challenger and I'm like, I'm just at a same place that I was, you know, eight months ago when I was 210 in the world. So, you know, you look at that and you're like, how much harder do I have to work? How much more do I have to push it? And for me, you know, I like to say that I'm thoughtful, but it honestly, it hinders me in so many ways. And my brain starts going, I'm like, you know, what is this all for? You know, I really do enjoy tennis, but the system just keeps beating you down. It just doesn't give you enough. And, you know, me pocketing $35,000, $40,000 at the end of the year, you know, for being 120 in, you know, the world of what I do, you know, I felt embarrassed by that. <laughs> you know, I was like, it was, you can make jokes and, you know, I'm, you know, a cynic joke maker, but it's just, it hurt in the end. So that's kind of where behind the racket led into. And I was like, I can't be the only person feeling this. And once obviously I got my close friends involved where I basically said, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to interview you. And then we're going to see what happens. Um, but even after the first couple of interviews, like with Ernesto, Ernesto Escobedo and uh, Chris Eubanks and some of these others, like, you know, I had no followers, but they were still getting 50, hundred messages. And I was like, how is this getting out there? How are people really getting involved? And, you know, from there, you know, with some media publicity and, and getting um, some more noteworthy quote unquote players, it really did start expanding. And then it allowed me to kind of do what I wanted with it was just, just share these players stories on and off the court. Yeah. And uh, I, I find it so great too to just even pop on the Instagram page because I'll, I'll see the recognizable tennis players and faces and and they're often the names that you know I'm familiar with 
Robin Hassa, Manny Manella, players like this. And their names just like, I haven't thought of that player in quite a while. And you don't realize what's really going on with them behind the scenes, which is obviously, and, and behind the racket, of course, which, which uh, you capture so well. Um, you know, I'm sure you've closely followed this and, and have an opinion on it. We have the Miami Open on the go right now. And uh, Canadian Vashuk Pospisil, actually, uh, he lost in the first round there. And um, during his match, he, he had a bit of a blow up on the court. He was uh, telling the chair umpire that he was uh, being dealt with getting screamed at by the ATP chairman for an hour and a half the day before for trying to unite the players. And obviously, Vashuk Pospisil is one of the key members of uh, and, and driving members of the PTPA. Um, how, how important do you think it is for players to have uh, an association or a union? Is, do you think the PTPA is the, is the right route to go? And, and why do you think maybe he was feeling that pressure from uh, the ATP chairman just the other day before he had to step on court? Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I, I speak to people outside of the tennis world and they say the people that employ you are the ones that protect you. You know, there's a conflict of interest there, you know, that that just can't happen. You know, that doesn't really happen. There's a reason why there's a teacher's union. You know, there's a reason why this stuff is here. And obviously we can't use the word union, but we need something to protect us, to give us some power, to give us a seat at the table somehow. And I think that's what the PTPA is, is aiming to do. Um, obviously it's a tremendous undertaking. And I think people have to be a little bit more lenient on the timing. Um, you know, it's, it gets so difficult, you know, connecting all these players that have been so selfish for so many years. I mean, tennis is such a selfish sport. Now you're asking them to join forces and um, it's, it's not easy by any means. And, you know, from the ATP point of view, they've, you know, I can't speak to the WTA as much. I've been in talks with them, but from the ATP, you know, they, they throw out the word all the time of, you know, just play tennis, the saying, just play tennis, you know, that's all you have to do. And, you know, that's such a cop out to say, Hey, you guys are uneducated. You don't need to be in these communicate, you know, in these talks and you don't need this seat at the table, you know, why would you have that power? So, you know, I did during the pandemic, I, I was in, you know, conversations with many ATP execs and, and speaking to them and um, other people in the world and just seeing how I could possibly make a difference. You know, the PTPA wasn't really, an idea well that I knew of at that point um, and being in those talks and this was kind of before um, I came up with this, the idea of the BTR tour um, I was thinking can I help from the inside out and after a while I saw it as kind of a lost cause I mean you know what Vashik and, and Novak are doing is is remarkable and you know I think they had probably more resources than I would have during a situation like this and being in talks, you know, I, I, I told Vashik, I was like, you know, the, the blow up or whatever we want to call it, I, it would have been, you know, a hundred times worse if I was in that situation. I mean, I was, it's basically knocking your head against the wall and feeling like you're hitting a brick wall over and over again. And that's what it feels like going up against the ATP where, you know, these people have a, have a feeling in their head that everything's okay that there's no need for evolution and everything is just going to go on its way while, you know, I have somebody like Vashik that's working extremely hard to, you know, enable positive change. And they're just, you know, calling him ignorant, you know, for whatever. And it's just like, that's unbelievable. You know, do that in your private time. First of all, why would you do that in front of 150 other players? So it's, it's embarrassing. And again, the blow up that he had on court, I would have been flipping over chairs. I mean, you know, this is what I dealt with during the pandemic and I gave up. I mean, good on him for keep going. I gave up and said, I'm going to try from the outside. I'm going to have the BTR tour. I'm going to try to enable change where I don't have to have the ear of the ATP tour, but for Vashik, I mean, he has to be in touch with them all the time. So 
it's it's remarkable but at the same time it's i i wouldn't put that on anybody because it's a nightmare i've done it for a few months and and it's not something you want to be up against yeah i i can only imagine and uh it's something i know vashik has been incredibly passionate about for for a long time now it's not just something that they sort of quickly you know scramble together which i think sometimes is maybe people's perspective that they just like quickly cobble together this idea of a ptpa and they're they're disorganized and don't have a plan i i, I don't believe that's the case whatsoever I, i'm sure uh they do have a thoughtful plan and uh you know it might be many years before we see uh any change exacted but uh we are hopeful uh you mentioned uh your btr tour which i'm curious to to know more about um because Behind the Racket is is launching its own tour, uh, so to speak. And I, I know you have an event in, in Las Vegas. Uh, what makes, I, I suppose, your tour uh, a little different than a regular touring event? And uh, what can you expect, I guess, if, if you go to a tournament like this? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, kind of during the pandemic, again, once I, you know, put the ATP aside and WTA aside, I, I went back to my team and with a, a few other people close to me, I said, hey, is this possible? Um, you know, I worked with my co-founder on it and said, you know, I basically wrote down 40 things that I wanted to change within tennis um, that I saw needed for the evolution of it. Some things that the pandemic highlighted and was clear to a lot of people. Other things may not be as clear, but I knew were in my head were musts to, you know, gain a following, to gain excitement. And it really comes down to fan engagement and accessibility, you know, between how long tennis matches are, between the scheduling of tennis matches, between how long tournaments are between fan engagement, between, um, you know, the actual cheering during a match and, and the scoring format. And then, you know, bringing in live music and, you know, art and culture for me, it's, it's bringing kind of a festival feel to the highest level of tennis. And, you know, I don't know how big of a baseball fan you are and no offense to baseball players, but you know, I love playing it, watching it. I get a little bored after a while, I'll be honest. And for me, I enjoy going because, you know, you're going to be with friends. You could talk, you have a beer, have a hot dog, you really enjoy yourself. And I think tennis is far more exciting of a sport in person. But even to that extent, you know, there's no reason why, and you know, things going on around it to really offset it and to have a full day that that wouldn't bring some excitement. And there's also no reason why we can't play in front of fans cheering at the top of their lungs. I mean, I, I've done it with kids in practice. I did it in college where you have these people screaming and it just motivates me to play better tennis. So for us, you know, I looked at all the revenue streams and I just saw that the um, accessibility issues were, you know, not leading to these revenue streams. I, you know, we needed more and that's, you know, we got an email during the pandemic from the ATP that basically said we are relying too heavily on fans and seats. You know, this is, these are conversations that the sport should have had 20 years ago, but we're having them now. So for me, I, I kind of took that as this is time to change and the BTR tour will be changing that. So, you know, we're excited to kind of launch this. We're excited to change the culture because we will be doing juniors as well. Um, but we think this is the perfect timing for it. And uh, yeah, and we're excited to kind of put this up. Awesome. Awesome. And that, that's starting up uh, first event September in Vegas. So uh, if you're in the area, definitely check it out. Uh, Noah, we're going to wrap with some, something we do with uh, some of our guests, which are okay. rapid fire questions, which are always God, I'm fun. The this. <laughs> <laughs> put, you, put you on the spot. We'll see how it goes. First one, pretty easy. Are you a morning or night person? Night. Night. Um, favorite movie you can go back and watch at any time. 
or one of your favorites? Ooh, the Hurt Locker. Good film. Uh, favorite tournament to play? Indian Wells. Toughest opponent you have ever faced? <laughs> Federer. The biggest win of your career? John Isner. Uh, do you have a favorite country or place you have visited? Ooh, I think Paris is always top of my list, but Australia is, is second. Um, if you could meet any one athlete in the world, who would it be and why? Wow. Meet any one athlete. Um, I think Michael Jordan's up there. Uh, Lewis Hamilton as well. Hmm. Yeah, those, those would be top two. I'm sure I'm missing a few others. And yeah, throw Messi in there. Why not? Nice. And yeah. uh, last one for you. If you weren't a professional tennis player, what do you think you would be? <laughs> uh, take out sports as a whole. Cause I think soccer would be second on that okay. list. Um, yeah. I mean, photography and journalism. So like photojournalism would kind of be the path that I was always in. I think that kind of led to behind the rack in a way. So. Awesome. Uh, well, Noah, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for, for joining us on Matchpoint Canada. And if we want to find your work uh, behind the racket, you guys have a website, great podcast, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing the tour come as well in September. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. There you have it, my interview with Noah Rubin, who uh, is also kind of working uh, to set up his own tour as well, the BTR tour. So there is going to be tennis um, in a kind of a new landscape coming at some point. I'm not sure if it's actually this year or, or next year. He did inform me their event in September for now has been postponed. But uh, Noah Rubin, he's picked up some great wins. It is always interesting catching up with these people who have like, they've won those junior titles in the past. We've had examples of Canadians, you know, Philip Pellywell comes to mind of great, great junior success. And it is so easy to forget about some of these terrific athletes, how much of a struggle grind it is to make it to that next stage. And uh, the most fascinating part I've, I found about this conversation with Noah is him saying when he got to his career high of number 125, he didn't really take any appreciation of it. He was just like, I worked so hard to get here. And I, it's almost like he experienced some burnout, which I think happens to a lot of athletes at this yeah. stage. Yeah. He said that was his darkest time, which was, um, you know, unexpected. You'd think that would be a time when you're feeling your, your happiest and most upbeat about what you've accomplished. But, you know, you're, you're playing Roger Federer in the second round of the Aussie Open one day. And then not too long after you're struggling at the challenger level. I can see how you felt you were so close and in your mind thinking, hey, I've made it oh, wait a minute, I haven't quite made it yet. I got to keep grinding. I got to keep working. Um, I actually watched those, um, the highlights, and I should say highlights in quotation marks of his match against Federer at the Aussie Open because whoever put the highlight package together, it was an all Roger Federer highlight package. <laughs> I've it, seen it, I know. It didn't show a single point, I think, of Noah Rubens, unfortunately. And, and that match, he was up, Noah was up three love and five three serving for that third set actually and and Federer right. got back into it um and i read somewhere noah was saying that uh, he rattled Federer's cage in that third set when he shouted out come on and Federer stared him down during the next changeover <laughs> like who are you to say that against me right and uh, yeah you know what a moment but then i can also see how that could lead to frustration and self-doubt down the road uh, as you're not able to sort of yeah permanently put yourself in that next echelon of 
of tennis players. Yeah, certainly. You're, you're playing that match, you know, in the biggest arena in sports and you think, well, I, I finally made it, but that's just not always the case. And uh, as you pointed out, the three-year ranking system, just with what is going on with, with COVID-19, it makes it hard to kind of make a progression um, at this point. Obviously, him and I discussed the PTPA issues. And of course, this is something Noah, I think, feels very strongly about. I think he has a good relationship with Vashik Pospisil as well. Um, and basically said if he were behind the scenes dealing with those issues and had to go play a, play a match, he would be beating his head against the wall. You would see 100 times the level of what we saw in terms of a no blow doubt. up of, of Vashik Pospisil. No doubt. And that's probably why a lot of players don't want to get involved. Because, you know, to be at your best, you can't, you can't afford negative mental energy to creep in there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a player like, like Noah, or if you're playing in the top 100, who's trying to improve, 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 who has time for that kind of distraction? I got to say kudos to Vashik, whether you agree with his stance or some of the things that he's including in his proposed PTPA agenda, I think you got to give him credit that he's taken something like this on and he's not taking it on for himself. He's taking it on for his fellow players. So I really, really, um, do have to tip my hat to him in that sense. Um, and, uh, and we'll see what comes of it this year. He mentioned to us 2021 is make or break for PTPA either gets off the ground this year or, or he made it sound like it, it wasn't going to happen at all. So um, pretty, pretty, you know, tense time and, and, uh, and clutch moments for this organization, if it's going to succeed in his mind. Yeah, certainly. You're listening to Matchpoint Canada. We got to talk about the women's side because uh, for me, um, starting on Bianca on rescue and what she produced in the round of 16, This was hands down for me the best performance I have seen from Bianca dating back to 2019 and probably the U.S. Open. She defeated Muguruza, who to me is the most informed player in the world outside of Naomi Osaka rallies for a 3-6-6-3-6-2 win. 34 winners off the racket of Bianca Andreescu and completely changing the dynamic of this match. You felt like she she was the player under pressure at all times in that first set. So for her to kind of flip the script, take control, you know alter her strategy I think in the return game and become the aggressor and really really take over through the latter stages I I mean I this was a a very prompt reminder that Bianca is still one of the best women's players on the planet yeah and I think it was a reminder that we needed because we've all been collectively watching Bianca and, and when I say we I mean you know the Canadian tennis fan and tennis media we've been watching her sort of really tentatively, I, I tweeted this last night, like we've all been a little bit hesitant to, um, to open up and, and feel comfortable with her on the court again and, and to put too much pressure on her or too much pressure perhaps on our expectations of her, um, not knowing you know, how long it's going to take her to get back. Will she get back uh, to the top, top levels of the women's game? And it's only her third tournament, and this was by far her toughest opponent in Muguruza, someone who was 21-4 and four on the year Uh, here in 2021, who had won a title in Dubai, had made two other finals in Doha and Melbourne, and almost beat Naomi Osaka, who's been unbeatable, literally unbeatable this year, uh, at the Australian Open. So I've got to say, while I gave Bianca the edge, the slight edge against Anisimova, another really good, talented young player, Mm -hmm. I I gave Bianca the slight edge in the previous match. In this one, I, I had to say I did not expect the victory. But to see the way that she worked her way through that match, got more confident as it went on, figured it out and turned the tables and put the pressure onto her opponent, who's been playing so incredibly well this year. To me, if I'm a huge Bianca fan, I can finally kind of take the training wheels off and say, okay, she's back. I'm feeling good about this right now. In fact, I'm feeling really good about this at the moment. 
Yeah, you saw at certain points the looks of bewilderment on the face of Garbina Mukuru, the latter stages of the second set and early in the third, kind of like, what do I do here um, with the power, I think, behind some of these ground strokes from Bianca? We have to talk about one of these shots that uh, Andres oh hit in this match as well. This was a, an on-the-run passing shot. I mean, we've seen enough on-the-run passing shots, I think, in highlights before. But this was full stretch out wide past the doubles alley and Bianca used a forehand slice squash shot essentially. And it just lasered past Garbina Muguruza for a down the line winner. Um, Bianca kind of looked to her, uh, looked to her box right after she hit it. And she thought that went in because she, she was so far off the court after she hit it. I don't even think she saw the ball. Um, Unbelievable passing shot for me, probably the shot of the tournament in Miami, either side. One, one of the shots of the year. I can't think of a shot that I've rewound and well, I shouldn't say rewound. It wasn't on a VCR, but that I've gone back <laughs> yeah. and, and rewatched as many mm-hmm. times as that one. I just couldn't believe it. And, and to me at that shot, I'm like, that's it. This is, this is done. There's no comeback coming here from Muguruza because if that kind of shot doesn't break your spirit, I don't yeah. know what will. Um, but yeah, the repertoire on full display, uh, the drop shots that were, that she was struggling with a little bit earlier in the match and the previous match, I feel like those started clicking as well. Um, uh, hey, look, who knows what, what happens next? And, and fitness-wise, there's still the, the concern that it's only her third tournament back. She's playing these long grinding matches again. What's the toll it's taking on her? There was the medical timeout against An- Anisimova in that third set for the back, which if you know Bianca Andreescu, there's no doubting that there was some legitimacy to that. Um, and even if there wasn't, it's part of the rules, folks. So just deal with yep. it. I'm, I'm kind of tired of hearing it anymore, the whole medical timeout. It exists. And if you're a professional player and you can't deal with your opponent taking a timeout like that, well, then I'm sorry. I, I don't have that much sympathy for you. But uh, so the fitness levels of Bianca, hopefully that, uh, you know, holds up. She's up against uh, Sarah Cerebus Tormo in the next match, which is, I think, as good of an opponent as you can ask for at this stages of a tournament of this magnitude. And, uh, and for Cerebus Tormo, this is yet another uh, matchup against a Canadian player. She beat Jeannie a couple of tournaments ago. Then she lost to Leila Annie Fernandez. And so we'll see how it goes here in this third match against the Canadian. But uh, gosh, you got to feel good about uh, how things are looking for Bianca Andreescu. And, um, and to me, that was the moment where I even could just say, hey, I, I think she's, she's back on track now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and as you said, Sarah Cerebe's Sarah Torbo next to uh, credit to her. She's playing the best tennis of her career right now, um, but uh, certainly doesn't have the firepower, but it will be an interesting match. If Bianca is to win this, um, we could potentially see an Andrescu Osaka matchup in the semifinals. And we got to talk uh, just quickly about Naomi Osaka. I know we did have a six and a half month break in there, obviously because of COVID in 2020, but, but dating back to her last loss, Naomi Osaka has now won 23 matches in a row and has the opportunity to take this number one ranking over. Uh, you know, if she wins the title in Miami, amazingly, she's never even been to the quarterfinals of Miami. So already you have a milestone here. Uh, if she does win this title, Title, uh, she will take that ranking uh, over from Ash Barty, who is still in the mix. Or if uh, Barty loses uh, before the semifinals, so if Barty were to lose her next next match and Osaka gets in the final, she will also uh, take over. So you know, Naomi to me right now, Naomi Osaka, I think is the measuring stick and the best player uh, in the world on the women's side. So 
I, I would like to see her have that number one ranking at the same time uh, backing Bianca. You would love to see a great performance against Osaka. Yeah, and no disrespect to Ashley Barty, but to mm-hmm. me, in my mind, Osaka is the the number one player right now, the, the top player on the women's tour um, winning in Australia and this uh, current streak she's got going. Her last loss was February 5th, 2020. Now I know that sounds like ages ago, but you know, it's because of the pandemic and the time that, that she was off the tour as well. But uh, yeah, to me, Naomi is, uh, is number one. And um, again, to see that developing rivalry against Andrescu would be fantastic. Uh, I think the two match up really nicely together. They, they have a nice rapport as well, as, as you and I saw at the, uh, the Rogers Cup uh, draw ceremony uh, back in 2019, where they were both on hand for that. And having some laughs and you know often you see players just kind of sit there and not interact with each other at those moments but those two had a good rapport going on and um you know with osaka being 23 and bianca being uh what is she 20 years old i mean we got years and years to enjoy this one and and i'm looking forward to these little rivalries that bianca can have with with players and and i also think to go back to anisimova i think uh, bianca and the american can develop a good uh rivalry as well anisimova who made the semis of the uh, French Open back when she was 17 years old. Let's not forget what an immense young talent she is as well. So with Bianca back, hoping that she can get a good stretch of matches in this year, I'm looking forward to those second, third, fourth encounters she has against some of these players and and seeing how those uh, develop. Yeah, certainly. We'll finish just on one more Canadian note. Uh, to me, this was an impossible task for Leila Fernandez to try and come through qualifying in Miami. She had just won her first career title in Monterey. And when we spoke to her for the press conference that night, she basically said she was hopping on a plane to try and get to Miami and had to play immediately the next day. So she fell in qualifying to uh, Buzarnescu, I believe. So, you know, it would have been nice if she could have had some type of exemption, maybe a wild card. I, I certainly think she would have been worthy of a wild card to get into Miami. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Uh, so the early exit and qualifying for Layla. But uh, for me, you're looking at the first three months of the season as a success story for Fernandez, who already has her first career title. Yeah, that was such a whirlwind for her. And, and you could tell as soon as she she won the, the, the event in Monterey and was hoisting the trophy, you could tell she wanted to get moving. The press conference yeah. happened so quickly. Her answers were a little shorter than usual. And you could tell on her mind, it was like, I got to get going. I got somewhere to go. I got to start focusing already because that's who she is, you know, already starting to focus on what's next. And so, uh, yeah, Mission Impossible should have been the theme song they played as she stepped out onto <laughs> court for her qualifying match. Um, certainly no, no shame in losing there. Very excited for her next tournament and to see her back in action uh, with a, a little rest um, and, and to see our, our latest Canadian champion continue that forward progression and continue to give Canada another uh, talented face uh, in professional tennis. Leilana Fernandez, um, no longer a secret, no longer an unknown quantity. She's out there. Folks know that she's, uh, she's on track to being another fantastic player for our country. Yeah, absolutely. Just last note, we do have Ottawa's Gabriela Dabrowski in the doubles field as well, uh, getting set for a quarterfinal action. You have been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.